My name is Carlos Virgen, and this is the Storyline Podcast. Every week, we'll highlight top stories on theday.com and talk to reporters, editors, and visual journalists involved to give you some insight and background on how the story came about. This week, we'll talk about our ongoing coverage of the opioid epidemic and how addiction and overdose deaths affects families, including grandparents. We'll also talk about a recent criminal investigation involving a local businessman. And we'll talk about journalists shooting guns. Today we'll be talking to Lindsay Boyle, reporter at The Day. This past week she wrote an article about the growing number of grandparents who are becoming financially responsible for their grandkids and how that is linked to the ongoing opioid epidemic. We'll also talk about her reporting on the recent story involving the owner of the New London Waterford Speed Bowl and his alleged involvement in a human trafficking ring. So, Lindsay, let's talk about um, the opioid grandparents story. Um, how did you come across the story, and, and how did you get in touch with the woman? I actually wrote a different story first, um, and, and that was inspired by a pointer conference that I went to. They did uh, a day-long seminar-ish kind of thing on, on opioids, covering the opioid epidemic, where just reporters from actually all over the country came and we kind of bounced ideas off of each other um, to take new angles on, on an epidemic now that, that maybe our readers are getting sick of hearing about, um, at least some of them. So it was really interesting. And what happened was um, some of the uh, presenters talked about um, looking at medical claims and noticing that the number of women um, that had signs of a heroin overdose or an opioid overdose, that was increasing. So I came back from that. Um, conference and decided to take another look at uh, the state office of the chief medical examiner's data, um, which he had released about a week prior to the conference. So, um, you know, we had just looked at the very basics. You know, it's the first time that Connecticut's ever had more than 900 fatal overdoses, but we didn't break it down by age prior to that, by gender or anything like that. So this time we did, and I say we, meaning uh, Carlos and myself, and what we found was a very sharp increase in the number of young women, and by that I mean 17 to 34-year-olds who um, had died from uh, 2015 to 2016. And I remember um, the fentanyl, the fentanyl increase was was more than 300%. So this is a pretty shocking increase to see. Um, and so, so we ran with it, we wrote that story. I wanna say three or four days later, um, a woman actually called me so this wasn't me reaching out to to her this wasn't even uh me really expecting it she kind of called me out of the blue and said so so was this uh, as a result of that story right that so, story? so she oh. said to me um she goes hey um i read your story uh that ran on on whatever day it was my daughter is one of those women so you know i said i'm so sorry to hear that um do you, do you want to tell me a little bit more about your daughter? So so we had a, a little bit of an introductory conversation, um, and, and I didn't know where it would go at that point. She told me about her daughter's son. She told me how she's raising her daughter's son. And I thought, I bet a lot of people, I bet a lot of grandparents are raising 
their grandchildren in the wake of this epidemic. Uh, so I asked her if she'd be willing to sit down with me, and she said yes. Um, was it a, a phone interview? Did you go to her, her home? or? I did. I went to her home. I, I just sat there uh, for two hours. I sat in her kitchen and just kind of let her tell me um, about the last 10 years of her life, really. Um, and and she was not even sure at first if she was going to consent to have the story told. Um, but ultimately, obviously, she did. Uh, so you went in there not knowing if you were even going to be able to write a story about it. But so you listened to her and then eventually she agreed that, that she would be willing to. And, and so the other part of the her story is that, that she... Um, wanted to remain anonymous. Um, can you give a little background uh, uh, from her perspective as to why she wanted to do that? Sure. Um, so, so we try to avoid anonymous sources where we can. Um, so we only grant that in certain cases. And she explained to me uh, that there were certain members of her family who didn't actually know yet that this was the cause of death of her daughter. Um, and it's one of those things that, that, that you don't want someone to read in the newspaper first. So it, it seemed to me reasonable to grant her request uh, based on that. Um, you know, I'm talking to some relatively close family members. So I, I spoke with our editors. That's kind of how the process works. Um, and they agreed with me that the story was compelling. Uh, it was really important. And in this case, it would be completely fair to, to grant that request. As part of the story, we kind of looked at additional data, um, uh, specifically uh, at data showing the, the, the number of grandparents who are living with children, with their grandchildren, and who are financially responsible for them. We kind of looked at the census data from uh, 2015, I believe. Actually, it's from 2009 through 2015. And, and we saw uh, a significant spike um, over that time period and then kind of a, a gradual decline over the last couple of years but still significantly higher than the original number in 2009. Can you speak a little bit about that or any other trends that you um, encountered? Sure. Um, I think I think my initial impression upon seeing that because we, we almost expected just a straight up increase and we didn't see that. We saw it start to decline. I'm looking right now. Uh, we saw it start to decline from 2012 to 2013. Um, I think You'll find a lot of people that would say the recession led to that initial increase. So uh, as people lost their jobs, lost their homes, a lot of families moved in together, and that kind of thing happened. Um, so so that it started to decline in the last few years, I guess, isn't as surprising. What happened when I was speaking to healthcare experts and, and people who were dealing with child welfare was that they said, you know, yeah the overall numbers might be declining a little bit, but more people are, are coming to this because of the opioid epidemic. Um, that's that's generally what the response I got was. Right, so the gradual decline uh, probably uh, has to do with, with the improvement in the economy, but overall the numbers are still higher because, in fact, the, the opioid epidemic is, is probably affecting this number right. anyway. right. In your story, you also mention a, a bill that's being proposed uh, that would increase, I believe, uh, the amount of, of financial support that these um, grandparents uh, would receive. I, I spoke with um, a congressman who is on the aging committee, and he explained it as um, a discriminatory, discriminatory practice. That's what he called it. So if, if you um, are a parent or a grandparent or a kin relative and you agree to take in um, your grandpa or your grandkid and care for them, 
Um, I think you get something just under $400 a month. Um, but if you're a foster parent in the state, it's it's closer to 800 I believe. Um, so the, the, the congressman, his name is, um, is Joseph Sarah. He was saying that that the state is kind of taking advantage of, of the love of grandparents, honestly, because they are still acting as a foster parent, essentially, but they're getting half as much money, and these, again, are the ones who are in need. Um, so he has proposed, I guess the committee as a whole has proposed for several, for several years on now, um, a bill that would increase the amount of aid that goes to those grandparents or kin relatives, you know, relatives who decide to take on um, of grandkids. And, and he, too, said a lot of it is because of the opioid epidemic, but that's not the only reason. Um, the fiscal analysis put it this year at close to $15 million. Chances passing pretty slim, but, um, but he just thinks it's a pretty unfair practice. Right, uh, especially for grandparents, depending on their age, some of them may be retired or nearing retirement age, right. and, and this this and, and kind of unexpected. And, and some are forced to to leave their jobs so that they can, uh, you know, get the kids to school or get the kids to practice, take care of the, the children. You know, um, it's it's a, a pretty rough situation when you're not expecting to kind of raise a, a kid after you've already raised kids. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, a quote in your story. It's towards the end of the story where um, uh, the the woman talks about finding her grandson uh, in the basement, I believe, of her daughter's home, and he was strapped in his car seat, and um, and how she had to call uh, DCF, and and how difficult that was. Um, as, as a reporter, how do you get to the point where someone that you're interviewing trusts you enough to? Um, to share that kind of information that's obviously very difficult to kind of uh, share with anyone. Um, and, and how do you kind of uh, digest that and, and incorporate it in your story? The number one thing that seems to have benefited me in some of these very tough conversations that I've had in covering this opioid epidemic especially um, is that I'm honest. I, I'm, I'm real. I actually I can identify with um, these folks. I, I do have addiction in my family, thankfully not opioid addiction, but... I, I, I am honest when I'm telling them that, that their story matters. Like I said, with this particular woman, I, I sat in her kitchen. Uh, I, you know, she, she, ha- she asked me if I wanted coffee, and I said, sure. Um, so I sat there in her kitchen, and I took a look at her grandson's birthday card. And, um, you know, I took a look at the photo on the wall, which actually ended up being what I led the story with because it was just a stunning, stunning photo um, of her daughter. But but I think a lot of it with with her was you know this was still this still is very fresh for her. It was hard for her to talk to me. It's only been you know three months since her daughter passed away, um, and and I just sat there and and let her talk. Um, so we had actually glossed beyond the point of her taking custody of the grandson, and I had to bring it back. And I said, but wait, when did this actually happen? And so at that point, I would say we were 45, 50 minutes in. And so she was very honest uh, with, with what was happening, what she saw, and when she knew that she had no choice but to make that call to DCF. Um, and she said that, that, that quote that you mentioned, you know, do you know how difficult that is? She looked at me right in the eye and was basically crying and said that. And I was like, no idea. 
I have no idea. And, and I think a lot of us, uh, that's something that we're not thinking about. So I really wanted to include it. The day has been reporting on the opioid epidemic for the last couple of years, and, and uh, like you said, this was just another angle to, s to show the impact of, of, uh, of the epidemic beyond just the, the raw numbers of, of, of people that die of overdose, but just kind of the, the peripheral effect of it to the grandparents, to uh, you know, other family members, obviously the children. Uh, what else are, 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 are you looking at um, to, to continue covering this, this, this problem in the region? Um, young mothers um, who get opioids after giving birth. Um, there are a couple of really interesting studies that came out on that this month, so I'll be working on that story next week. Um, but, but yeah, it's really just keeping an eye out um, on the numbers and always, obviously, um, finding the real people that, that actually are the numbers. You know, the numbers are not the story. Uh, I wanted to move on to the most recent story that um, one of the most recent stories that you've been working on, and it's the, un, um, and it's the uh, case of the owner of the New London Waterford Speed Bowl and his alleged involvement in a human trafficking ring. Uh, can, first of all, can you talk a little bit about how you you discovered the story and and kind of your process uh, into trying to verify who this person was, if, if in fact he was the the person that we we thought he was. But what happened with this one, um, we, we got a phone call. Actually, I didn't even get the phone call. Uh, my colleague got the phone call and forwarded it to me and a couple other folks um, from a man who, who it, was, it was vague, it was quick, it was short, but it was like Speedball owner is somehow involved. You know, he was arrested for, for something involving basically assaulting young men um and we we get tips relatively regularly you never really know how they're going to pan out um i i jumped i jumped right into it because if true this was a massive story the guy told us the tipster um that danbury police arrested bruce beamer in glastonbury which is where he actually lives and has a business so um, I wasn't even really sure um, what Glass if Glastonbury police played a role, like why, why Danbury police were involved, I had no idea. But I called Danbury police up and their, <laughs> their press person um, wasn't working on, on Wednesday. So I, I didn't get a lot from them. But I did get a clarification that they'd held a Bruce Beamer overnight, basically. Um, and, and so then I, I started calling the courts. We figured that it would go to a superior court. Um, since Danbury police confirmed they made the arrest, we tried Danbury superior court. Lo and behold, they were like, oh, yeah, we, we did. We arraigned him this morning. So I said, oh, on what charge? And that's when they said, oh, uh, trafficking or, or, or um, patronizing a trafficked person, which is not one that comes up frequently. Um, which basically means... It, it, it means paying to, to have sex with with someone who's been trafficked right. with someone who's doing it against their will essentially right. um, and at that point did did you know that the Bruce Beamer in question was the Bruce Beamer uh, the owner of the speed speedball no um, so at that point I said you know keep in mind I don't have any anything to go off of other than this tip and this guy's name so at that point I said to the 
clerk at the Danbury Superior Court, I said, oh, do you have a date of birth? And she was like, oh, I can't give that out. Do you have it? You know, I can verify it if you have it. And so I'm at my computer. I pull up this system we have called Nexus. I type in Beamer really fast. There are two in Connecticut, only two. One is 42 years old, one is 63 years old. He's got, you know, Nexus isn't perfect. He's got 1953 and 1954. So I just, I pick one and I say 1953. And she's like, yeah, that's the Beamer we have. And at that point I started to feel relatively confident because here's a a Beamer who lives in Glastonbury, he's 63. Uh, It really probably can't be anybody else. You looked at the arrest warrant affidavit. Can you explain a little bit to to our readers, our our listeners, what um, those kinds of affidavits um, include? Sure. Um, So the arraignment was Wednesday morning, but I knew that first thing in the morning I needed to show up um, to get it on Thursday. And so I got there, I want to say 9.15, and it was about five minutes before they sent it upstairs, they told me. I, I got it just in time and just took photos of everything, so I didn't even have time to digest it. I just took photos of it and handed it back because they needed it. Um, it's 10 pages. Um, these affidavits, always they, they, they're always written by, by one person, uh, one law enforcement officer usually, um, and they just kind of outline the facts, and, and usually they go in order. It's very time-based. Um, exactly what they learned, when they learned, you know, who they talked to, what that person said. Um, started reading through it, and, um, well, our tipster was right. Uh, our, our tipster actually underplayed um, what these allegations are. Again, they're allegations, but um, I, I, I took, I, I always take as much time as it is it needed just to read it, just read it. I don't write right away. Um, because I want to fully understand what's happening. So I just took a while. I, you know, I ran to a Starbucks and took my time to read it and understand what it was and then started kind of dissecting it, pulling it apart, deciding what actually readers needed to know. There's a lot of graphic detail that we did not include. Um, and, and there are lots of pieces of information that, that just you couldn't include. It was already a pretty long story. So. Um, and, and so we published the story um, and... and um we do, did not allow comments on the story. Um, can, can you, let's talk a little bit about that because I know that you've gotten some feedback from some readers or at least some emails, I think you said, um, asking why uh, we are not allowing comments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I have had uh, multiple people email me um, first about the first day's story, which was much more vague than, than yesterday's. Um, so, it's a really valid question. Um, you know, do you just see comments are disabled at the bottom of a story and you have no reason to know why? Um, there's not really a place for us to put why. So what happens is um, it's our policy of the day with, with any um, story where there could be a, a victim of sexual assault, we're, we're going to turn those comments off. And that is primarily because we don't want any chance um, that the victim is identified in the comments. It's also our policy not to identify victims in our stories. So why would we allow comments on a story like that? And and with all of the emails that I, I've gotten so far, um, I've answered just just basically what I just said. And everyone has understood. They've been really receptive to that idea. But that that is one of our policies here. You can reach Lindsay at L dot Boyle. That's B O Y L E at the day dot com. And uh, we'll keep track of uh, the the 
opioid epidemic and this um, most recent story that, that we were just talking about. So thank you for stopping by. My pleasure. Hey, Martha. Thanks for stopping by. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about your recent experience uh, shooting guns. You and uh, a few other uh, newsroom employees, uh, including our uh, Pashwanier and, and Mike DeMauro, um, got an opportunity to shoot some guns. Um, talk a little bit about that experience. And, and first of all, did, have you shot a gun before before that, that day? Yeah, I had. Um, but... I at one time before I had been on, I had been um, on an assignment um, and went to a uh, sort of civilian police academy uh, in a, at a police department that I was covering in Massachusetts um, and they had a whole bunch of people from the town come in and uh, and shoot uh, shoot some of their weapons as part of sort of training them and um, explaining to them how a police department works. But that was one time, and that was about four years ago, but even that sort of put me ahead of the curve. It, 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 it sort of made me the expert among, <laughs> among these, these guys. Um, so, right, that, that's what, that, that's what I, I hear is that you did pretty well, better than, than the other uh, newsroom. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to brag too much. I can, I can, maybe you can have them on and, and have them tell you about how good I was. But um, yeah, I was, a, I was a pretty good shot, but I think, I think that both Paul and Mike kind of sub surprised themselves with uh, how naturally it came to, to them as well. Was there anything that you took away from it that maybe you hadn't realized about, about guns or shooting guns? Well, one of the things that uh, it definitely reminded me of was uh, how fun it is and <laughs> sort of uh, your opinions about about guns and your, your opinions about whether what kind of restrictions should be put on them. Um, it's it's hard to deny that it, it is a lot of fun, and you do get a bit of a rush of adrenaline, um, especially if you if it's sort of your first time. Which I think is a, a similar conclusion that that both Paul and Mike came to, which is that they they sort of they, I think I think Mike phrased it that he he gets it now a little bit. He he sort of um, he understands why this is something that people enjoy as a hobby um maybe not necessarily why people take such hardline sort of political stances on protecting their rights to to own these various kinds of guns but um yeah it's it's uh, right, I, right. I, he, he he talked about the adrenaline rush and then the kind of power being intoxicating yeah uh, can you talk a little bit about that i mean is there actual like this rush that you get when you pull the trigger and you get the, the kickback of, uh, of the gun? just a little bit i mean the, there is i i said it's fun which it definitely is but there is you know that reminder that you are uh it's a lot of power to have even even the like less powerful weapons that we that we shot it's still uh, it's still kind of a gruesome thing to think about of what that could do if you were aiming it at something other than a piece of cardboard, which is what we were shooting at. Um, and yeah, especially, at, at, so we did a couple of different sort of exercises there. At first we shot at one piece of cardboard. We all were sort of shooting at it. At the end, it was just sort of full of different kinds of bullet holes. Uh, so like the, your typical like human silhouette. Kind yeah, of, it was uh, it was cardboard? a little bit more abstract than that. It was kind of just like a square with like another little square on top. 
Um, so that was fine. And then after we did that for a little while and everybody got a chance uh, to shoot, um, we then he sort of lined them up and put us in a kind of scenario that a police officer might find himself in or herself. And um, So like to identify so, friend or foe. Right, or, right yeah. Okay. So there were different uh, – we had to sort of I- – try to shoot the the one that might be the enemy and not the one and not the not the innocent bystander um how did you do it in that in that scenario fine and you know what they were trying to show us was that it's speed and um kind of that pressure of having to distinguish between different people and try to keep some people safe while other people and other people are um your targets are um it, it's a whole other it's a whole other thing than just you know shooting at shooting at a target and that that part of it was a little bit you know it's a little bit sobering you know you actually you start actually thinking of these things as like people and what it would be like if if it, there was actually a you know human being on the other on the other end uh, which is slightly terrifying um, obviously the guy, these guys were professionals and it was all you know very safe and and they they we're very good at ex- sort of explaining what we were doing and explaining all the differences between the different uh, guns that we shot. But uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a big uh, responsibility, I guess. There was a little. There was a little bit of cursing. There was. <laughs> there was a, I think a couple of them. Um, uh, we sh- we we all shot the handgun first, and um, that has a lot of kickback, and it's really kind of a a, a shocking experience. There's there's a lot of force. Um, that happens when you pull the trigger, and uh, I think I think Mike had some PG thirteen <laughs> words to say just right after. I don't think I don't I don't know what he was expecting, but it yeah. was it was a lot of power. Um, yeah, it's interesting because you you know again I've I've never shot a gun, and so my only experience with guns is is film and, and TV, and you see the the kind of uh, the physics of a gun on TV versus the physics of a gun from the video that was uh, that we we posted with uh, uh with these columns it's quite different quite the, the the difference is pretty stark especially with the handgun yeah well one of the i mean one of the things that that mike talked about in his column i think was his experience which was that he he was a pretty terrible shot with the handgun which is understandable because it, i mean it it was one of the more difficult to use weapons, I think that they they gave us, um, and he was saying that uh, it was making him rethink a little bit, sort of the different classifications between these kinds of guns. Um, I can see how it would, it's you know it's hard to do well. The people that we were with were police officers, and you know they were trying to get the point across that you know we were in a setting in which we were all standing still. It was daylight. We were shooting at a completely still target. You knew what to expect, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. None of us were nervous. We were, you know, we hadn't been running. And I think one of the th- one of the main points that really did c- come across um, was, you know, these things aren't aren't easy to shoot well. Um, it might be more fun than you expect, and it might be easier than you expect. But if you're, you know, in any other scenario, uh, if you're under stress or if you're um, running or if it's dark out, um, uh, wouldn't be easy to hit whatever you're you're trying to shoot at. So would you do it again? 
it's still a scary thing. I mean, I kind I kind of understand hunting, and I you know understand that, and that people people get enjoyment out of that. Um, and you know, shooting at a target is fun. I think I tend to overthink things, so that's probably it's probably not the not the hobby for me. <laughs> for someone you know who who you know starts thinking about it too much, um, it's it's mostly just I think about the adrenaline rush and about the the you know the fun that that they get out of it um so now i'm probably not gonna not gonna not gonna turn into a um regular um there but i yeah i would i mean i would do it again it, like obviously it's something that i'm good at so <laughs> if i that's what, that's, if, I, if yeah, I have to if i have heard. to to show somebody up uh i could uh, bring my annie oakley out a little bit guns are a big big issue and it's something that that sort of fits into a lot of different aspects of the stuff that we uh write about whether it's you know police or crime or um you know stuff going on in courtrooms and right and so the the best way to cover a lot of that stuff is to actually be in the courtroom to be out and to be out in the communities and to be out in the shooting range to shoot a gun right right and to to sort of know you know physically what's going on when 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 this stuff happens um yeah, I think I think we all sort of definitely learned a lot. Um, well, Martha, uh, thank you for stopping by and, yeah, and uh, sharing you. your experience uh, shooting shooting guns out in the woods. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. And I'll remind people that they could uh, reach Martha at uh, m dot s h a n a h a n at the day dot com. Um, and again, she's uh, the Montville and uh, Waterford reporter. So if you guys have any tips, any any thoughts, uh, reach out to her. Thanks again. Thank you. The day is working on a story looking at the effects of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, looking to include experiences, ideas, and thoughts from our local readers. So head on over to theday.com forward slash ACA to share your experiences and help us write a local story. Thank you.